0: with hypothyroid um, specifically, where you, you give a lot more of an increased risk of infertility and, um, and then increased risk of miscarriage once you do conceive.
1: Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Hey, it is nearly the end of May, which means it's almost time for me to speak at the incredible Health Optimization Summit that's happening on the 28th and 29th of May. I am going to be speaking all about understanding and optimising each phase of the menstrual cycle. And I'm also going to be hosting a panel discussion with Dr. Jolene Brighton and Dr. Amy Killen If you haven't got your ticket yet, it's going to be the most incredible event and I would love a ticket. Connect with you there. It's so nice to see listeners and subscribers and people that follow my content on Instagram in person. I just absolutely love connecting with you guys. So if you're coming, please reach out to me and let me know over on my Instagram, Angela S Foster. Send me a DM. If you're not and you're thinking about coming and you're sitting on the fence, then go and grab your ticket because if you enter coupon code Angela Foster, you can get 20% off your ticket. And I would absolutely love to see you there. So go to Summit health optimization.com and enter code Angela foster to get 20% off your ticket and in today's episode we're going to be talking all about thyroid health and specifically how the thyroid is affected by the health of your gut um, any kind of food intolerances and we're looking at the differences between um, underactive thyroid overactive thyroid and autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's and Graves disease so if you're having any thyroid issues at all then you're definitely Going to get a lot from today's episode, but interestingly, my guest Margaret Floyd Barry also talks about how the thyroid affects fertility, uh, which is very, very interesting, and also how thyroid problems are very common in perimenopause and we speak about how to heal the root cause of autoimmune disease through nutrition and the role of digestive dysfunction in chronic illness and really a whole new approach that Margaret has developed to healing food sensitivities. Margaret is a functional nutritionist writer and real food advocate who's been on the pursuit of the most nutritious and delicious way of eating for the better part of her adult life and she runs Eat Naked kitchen which is a thriving private practice that supports clients throughout north america and europe in achieving true health and vitality through therapeutic diets and lifestyle changes Uh, you may have listened to me interview margaret's amazing husband um james barry who founded the company eat pluck the lovely delicious organ meat seasoning uh that i absolutely love sprinkling on my food um if you don't know this already, organ meats are absolutely incredible for your health. They contain anywhere between 10 and 100 times the amount of nutrients compared to their conventional muscle meat counterparts. And liver specifically is considered to be a nutritional powerhouse and superfood for the thyroid, which we're talking all about today. Um, It's liver is nature's most concentrated source of vitamin A. And that is the vitamin that directly supports thyroid hormone metabolism and also helps to inhibit bit thyroid stimulating hormone secretion Um, organ meats and liver also really abundant in other nutrients that really support the thyroid including b vitamins like folate and b12 folate also very important for fertility and also minerals like iron and zinc and chromium and copper so if you don't like eating organ meats then eat pluck is actually a really easy way to tastefully upgrade anything that you're eating i will sprinkle it on kind of pan fried or pan seared chicken um, on lots on some steak my kids love it especially when we mix it with a little bit of redmond real salt it tastes absolutely amazing it has a kind of umami flavor Um, and you can get 10% off eat pluck by just heading over to my website angelafosterperformance.com and checking out the angela recommends page and there you will find a link to eat pluck where you can just enter code angela 10 to get 10% off and start sprinkling away like me and share with me your wonderful concoctions but now without further delay let me introduce you to the lovely margaret floyd barry So I'm really excited to be joined today by Margaret Floyd Barry. So far, we haven't had anyone specifically come on and talk about thyroid function, autoimmunity, fertility. And Margaret is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner. She's a restorative wellness practitioner who specializes in autoimmune disorders and in particular in thyroid health and fertility. Margaret, it's so great to have you here today. Welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you. It's great to be here
1: yeah it's really really it's a topic we haven't dived into yet in the podcast in any amount of detail so I guess let's start because everybody knows or they think they know about the thyroid and they know that it is important vis-a-vis their energy their metabolism and things like that but I think let's just kind of draw a, a bigger picture for people to understand what is the thyroid gland and why is it so important Absolutely. So we often call it the butterfly
0: gland because it sits on the neck, looks kind of like a little butterfly with two lobes on either side of, of your windpipe. And yes, it has an incredible role in um, our our metabolism and our energy levels. Um, But there are thyroid cell receptors Um, or thyroid hormone receptors on every single cell in our body. And so it has absolutely far reaching consequences when there's any kind of dysfunction in the thyroid. So it affects things like our skin. So people with thyroid dysfunction often have really dry, um, uh, sort of flaky skin. It affects our hair. Um, you sometimes see people who have thyroid dysfunction with the lateral third of their eyebrow has actually disappeared. Mm -hmm. Um, just, and that's, sort of this interesting thyroid piece. Um, it affects our cardiovascular function. It affects our reproductive hormones. It affects our bone health. Um, it affects our energy levels. It affects our circulation. So that's why people will have really, really cold hands and feet. That's one of the classic signs of hypothyroidism where, um, where we have insufficient thyroid hormones. So I think we think of it just in terms of metabolism. Um, we think of it in terms of weight. And certainly it has really important roles in that, but it is, I mean, there really isn't a a body system that it isn't impacting in some way.
1: Mm. It's so so important. And um, a lot of people think, well, I just, you know, I have an underactive thyroid. Uh, That's why I've been told by my doctor. So now I'm taking some thyroxine. That's okay. Everything's fixed. But they know they're not fixed because the doctor's quite happy and has sent them away. But yet they still feel that they can't control their weight properly. They still don't have as much energy as they would like. Their hair doesn't look like it should do. Um, What would you say here? Because I know we were talking before the show just about how prevalent this incidence of autoimmunity is. Um, and do you think this is going undiagnosed for many people?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So historically, hypothyroidism was much more associated with iodine deficiency um, because you need that nutrient iodine to actually produce the thyroid hormones. But in our world um, you know, of fortified foods and particularly iodized salt, iodine deficiency is actually fairly rare. And so it's really not about that anymore. Um, about 90% of thyroid um, dysfunction is due to an autoimmune attack. And what this means is that it's not, a problem originating in the thyroid per se. It's actually a dysfunction of the immune system that is attacking that thyroid. So I'm not sure how much um, you've talked about autoimmune on, on this podcast, but I think it's really important for people to understand, you know, that word's thrown around a lot, but understand really what that is. And, you know, essentially our immune system has two basic jobs, right? It's to protect us from pathogens, you know, viruses, parasites, those kinds of things. Um, It's also to do some internal housekeeping. That's the two, like at at its most simplest form. Those are the two major jobs. And it has this vitally important function of being able to distinguish both between self- and other, as well as between friend and foe um, in order to do that, to make sure that it's not attacking sort of the wrong thing. And basically what's happening in an autoimmune presentation is it is attacking the wrong thing. There's something that has gone awry in that sort of distinction mechanism. And now it's mistaking self, the very self it's supposed to protect for enemy other that it needs to attack. And what type of thyroid, or what type of autoimmune disease, excuse me, is all about the target tissue. And so in a thyroid situation, the target of the autoimmune attack is the thyroid itself. And specifically with Hashimoto's, most often it's actually targeting an enzyme, the TPO enzyme, uh, thyroid peroxidase enzyme, which actually is what's stimulating the production um, of those thyroid hormones. So when we look at it as a thyroid issue, we're missing such a big piece of the puzzle. We're not getting to the root of things. And so, yes, you can absolutely provide those hormones exogenously, right? You can take them as a medication. You can take the glandulars. You know, there's different ways to to get those hormones. Um, But oftentimes, people still feel awful because the root of the problem, which is the immune system attacking the thyroid, hasn't been addressed and the the imbalance goes much, much deeper. And so that is, that is absolutely vital to recognize. And I think it goes undiagnosed often. It's not even that it's undiagnosed. Well, there's a whole subclinical piece. That's that's in some ways a separate conversation because that's a really big issue. A lot of people have imbalances at the early stages and feel wretched, but they don't meet the formal diagnostic criteria for hypothyroidism. Um, and so they go, you know, the doctors are like, well, the labs look great, but you know, <laughs> the individual's like, and I can't explain the 20 pounds I put on in four weeks, you know, these kinds yeah. of, you know, just really oftentimes it kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, and it can be really debilitating. Um, but the autoimmune piece, you know, from the medical perspective, there's nothing you can do about it. So they don't often they either don't check for it at all and they just sort of assume that it is. Um, but once they have seen those elevated antibodies. They don't track them because they don't look at this as something that is a piece of the clinical puzzle. They're looking at the the target of the autoimmune, which is the thyroid, and managing it entirely from that perspective. So it's just a it's a piece that is really, really crucial to one's healing and how you feel um, that is is often missed.
1: Mm. yeah and it's a shame because there's so much you could do right to help people You bet. um yeah when you see that and that, that's kind of uh, where i'd like to sort of dive in next for, for yeah. people listening who are struggling with their thyroid so just so they understand in terms of autoimmunity there are two key ones that they might be struggling right there's Hashimoto's yes. where it's underactive generally and there's Graves where it's overactive and then yeah. you can actually oscillate as i understand between the two mm. as well so you, you can switch. You, you can
0: yeah which
1: is yeah. Uh, um And so what have you found? Are there, I think Hashimoto's seems much more common than Graves. Have you found the treatment protocols that you've had success with, with patients to be very similar for both? Um, Or is it better if we dive into one first?
0: Um, There are foundational pieces that are the same for both. And that are frankly the same for pretty much any autoimmune attack. And that is we always want to start with the gut and the reason why is that the vast majority of the immune system lives in and around the digestive tract and so if you think about well we know that in an autoimmune situation we know that what this is is this sort of distinction mechanism as i was explaining has gone awry well then the question is why what why has it gone awry and you know essentially there's a lot of different mechanisms for this, but at its most basic, what is happening when that distinction mechanism has gone awry is that for some reason, the immune system is being chronically engaged and isn't being given a break. So think about, you know, when, when you and I, when we're, when we're, you know, overworked, overtired, not getting a rest, you know, all the, all the life things, we start to make bad decisions, right. And it's just sort of, you know, what happens. And that's the exact same thing um, with the immune system. And there's a lot of different mechanisms for this. You know, there's molecular mimicry, um, there's the bystander effect, and I'm happy to dive into those if you'd like, but, but essentially what is happening is the immune system is being asked to do so much work all the time that it starts to miss fire. And so when we want to correct that, we really need to look at the places that are engaging the immune system the most. And given the fact that so much of the immune system lives in and around the, um, the digestive tract, given that digestive issues, even really low-lying, sort of subclinical, I say asymptomatic, but most times when people think that they are asymptomatic, it's actually that they've just gotten used to Mm. digestive discomfort and they don't even think of it as a symptom anymore, Um, that um, there's so much digestive dysfunction and we're eating foods that, um, unless you're just being really impeccable with your diet, um, so, so many things that we're eating, particularly packaged foods, processed foods, you know, much of the conventional diet is actually causing damage in the digestive system and is triggering the immune system in and of itself. So if we're eating multiple times a day, which most of us are, and if we have any kind of digestive dysfunction, that is necessarily, going to be adding a burden to the immune system that is consistent. Um, and it's those, it's those sort of steady, slow drips, right? Just like any kind of stressor. It's not necessarily the acute situation that is acute, all the resources are thrown at it and then it's cleared. It's the this, this, this slow, the low lying, the, the slow drip of inflammation and irritation and malfunction that is just this constant drain on the immune system. And I have to tell you, I, I mean, it doesn't always work this way, but so often in my practice, when we focus first and exclusively on digestive healing um, and you know identifying and removing inflammatory foods from the diet, just that can often be enough to bring someone into full remission with autoimmune. With sometimes we Hashimoto's need to and
1: Graves, or
0: Hashimoto's, Graves, and other autoimmune conditions as day. well. Yeah. yeah, no, that is it is so pivotal. So we always start there. And then, you know, and this is common, as I said, it's, it's this is the the common denominator for any kind of autoimmune and any any kind of thyroid um, autoimmune is that we, we, you know, we we have to address that immune component. So how we support the thyroid is going to be the piece that's really different in between those two situations between um, Hashimoto's between and Graves. Um, and you know, I will I will say right up front, I, I've definitely worked with some Graves clients, but but my the vast experience. Experience I have is with Hashimoto's. Um, and so in those kinds of cases, you know, we're trying to, we certainly want the client to feel better. Um, and if they're not already on any kind of medication, you know, we, we will work with glandulars, um, not being, I'm not a, a licensed medical doctor, so I, I don't have, um, I don't prescribe. Um, and so, um, so we, but we will work with glandulars and we will work with nutrients that are really supporting, um, the, the thyroid glands ability to produce those hormones. But as we're doing that, what we're doing is we are, um, we're really supporting the immune system to come back into balance, which actually means supporting the digestive system. And this can be a little bit mind bendy for people because they think, I mean, some people with, with, um, with uh, any kind of thyroid dysfunction will have digestive dysfunction as part of that. That's not something I mentioned at the beginning. With Hashimoto's, we tend to see very slow um, gut motility and transit time. So people who tend to be a lot more constipated and just have this really sluggish digestion, they feel like food is sitting in their stomach all day long and just everything just sort of feels like Full and heavy the whole way through. Um, and then for somebody with graves, it tends to be the exact opposite, yeah. where they're having, you know, very sort of hypermobile um, digestive and, and very fast transit time, where they are having more kind of a diarrhea presentation. And really, those types of people tend to lose weight very quickly and not be able to retain the nutrients because their metabolism is cranking so quickly um, that um, that that they're sort of flushing everything as opposed to the Hashimoto's where the body is kind of hanging on to everything.
1: Hmm. So before we uh, uh, dive into kind of healing the gut and the digestive issues, you mentioned yeah. there that there are nutrients that can really support uh, yeah. the thyroid gland and mm-hmm. also um using things like glandulas are we talking more about almost obviously removing the allergens but almost a western a price style diet where there's much more healthy fats uh calorie dense foods organ meats things like that um i'm just curious what you found what kind of protocol you're placing Mm -hmm. people on
0: well, so when I'm thinking of the nutrients for the thyroid very specifically, I'm actually thinking of um, so selenium, zinc, um, magnesium, and iodine are really, really critical nutrients in terms of in terms of producing those um, thyroid hormones and converting them. So, it's actually maybe I'll take a step back and explain sort of the, the chain of command when it comes to thyroid hormone production. So, what happens is that your your hypothalamus tells your pituitary how much thyroid hormone is needed. Your pituitary then tells the thyroid um, to crank up or turn down the thyroid hormone production. And that's that little hormone on blood tests you might've seen called TSH. That's thyroid stimulating hormone. Um, And this is one of those hormones that's counterintuitive when you're looking at lab work, because when it's elevated, um, it actually means a hypothyroid situation. And when it's depressed, it actually means a hyperthyroid situation. So think, of it, the way I like to think of it is it's the pituitary speaking to the thyroid. And if it's elevated, it's like the pituitary's yelling because it's just not getting saying, the yeah. response, right? It's shouting at the thyroid, like we need more hormones. Whereas if it's really low, it's like, it's just whispering. It's like, ah only little, you know, so, so that's what TSH is. And then what happens is your thyroid produces two types of hormones, T4 and T 3 And the vast majority of the, um, of the hormone it produces is T4, which is actually the inactive form of thyroid hormone. Your body then has to convert T4 into T3, which is the biologically active form of that hormone. So there's all of these steps. Um, and so, you know, the, the key nutrients are very often, and this is a piece that's often missed in the conventional medical model when they're not looking at the full set of labs. So when you're looking at labs to assess the function of a thyroid, very often the only markers that are assessed are the TSH. So that's the pituitary speaking to the thyroid. Sometimes they stop there. Um, but, yes, um, sometimes
1: that. Yeah. it's just kind of crazy.
0: <laughs> I know because there's so much to the story um, that's missing. Um, and then, then sometimes they add in free T4. So that's that it's inactive, um, but biologically available. So there's two for each, the T3 and T4, both of them that come in two forms. There's the, the bound form. So they, thyroid hormones kind of travel through the bloodstream on these. I think of them as like little protein shuttles, um, and, um, these little globulin molecules. And so a lot of the, the T4 and T3 is actually sitting on these little shuttles. And it's, it, there's a process that has to, to happen to basically uncouple them. And then there's the free form. So it's not bound, which means it's actually available for use. So free T4 is the, think of it as the raw materials for thyroid hormone in its free form, okay? Um, so those typically are the two markers that a conventional medical um, practice will look at. Um, but we wanna look at, of course, all of them. We wanna look at the free and total T4. We also wanna look at the free and total T3, especially that free T3, because free T3 is the, the, the um, biologically active form and the most bioavailable form of the thyroid hormone. So that's the one that's going to tell you how how you're feeling for the most part. Um, There there are other hormones that sort of complete the panel, but those are the the real basic ones. And then of course, we want to also look at the antibodies always. Um, But in terms of nutrients, back to your original question. So the conversion from T4 to T3 um, is often a piece of the puzzle that is not functioning. Properly, that's actually something we see very, very commonly as an underconversion of T4 to T3, and those nutrients that I listed—the selenium, zinc, um, magnesium, and then iodine—are key nutrients in that process. I want to just want say one thing: cautionary note on iodine. There's a lot of controversy in the health community regarding iodine when there's autoimmunity. Um, it can increase the production of the TPO enzyme, which is the attack is the target of attack for autoimmune. And so um, one school of thought is that when you support iodine and you increase the production of that TPO enzyme, what you're doing is you're actually exacerbating the autoimmune attack. There's an entire other school of thought that believes that this is just a sort of temporary transient stage that the body goes through as it's regulating Um, all to say what I would recommend if anyone is listening here, if there is an autoimmune component, I would be careful before running out and supplementing with iodine. And I would work with a practitioner before doing that, but things like the selenium, the zinc, the magnesium, um, there's a lot of thyroid um, combination products that include those nutrients um, and, and are excellent ways of supporting it.
1: So I recently popped into my local skin clinic to have an assessment done on my skin. Called, I think it's a Visia machine, um, and it's, it's actually quite scary because they look at like how many wrinkles, pigmentation, how clean your skin is, to really give you a score on how well your skin is aging and things that you can do to really rectify it. And since the pandemic, uh, even though we've kind of got back on track, I have not been really doing any kind of facials or skin therapies at all, and so. I realized that now was kind of the time to get back on track. And I was thinking, shall I do PRP? Shall I do some derma rolling to encourage some collagen? And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll do an assessment. And then from there, we can work out what we need. And uh, I was excited when they said to me that my skin was seven years younger than my age. And they asked me what had I been using. And I credit that to Young Goose Skin Literally everyone that I have recommended this to, Uh, gets the most transformational results if you haven't listened to my podcast with young goose then go back and definitely listen to that episode it's one of the most popular episodes and as i say everyone i recommend young goose to absolutely loves it it's a regenerative skin therapy that literally corrects cellular damage that has accumulated over time with nad resveratrol um coenzyme Q10. It's a really powerful range, but it feels beautiful um, on your skin. No irritation from any of their retinol products at all, which are in a kind of an oil-based serum. Um, I kind of hydrate with their Um, vitamin C peptide spray first and then add the retinol serum to lock in that moisture before using their NAD based products. I use their green tea serum. I love their hyperbaric oxygen mask. And as I say, the results don't lie. So when I had the assessment done, my skin was indeed getting younger. And I've been using that now for about six or eight months, I believe. So if you want to check it out, head over to bit.ly forward slash Young Goose and enter code Angela Foster at checkout to get 20% off. That's bit.ly forward slash Young Goose and enter code Angela Foster to get 20% off at checkout. Now let's get back to the show.
0: Now in terms of the diet, um, you know, it's interesting because, um, because of um, because of this, and you know, I'm speaking in a in a Hashimoto's um, context. Because of the sluggish thyroid, um, in some cases, a higher fat diet is actually not the most effective. And now I say that, and there's certain people who have totally healed their Hashimoto's using a ketogenic diet, which is high fat. Um, in, there's there's going to be metabolic preferences and there's a lot of tweaking that needs to happen sort of on an individual basis. What I would say is the absolute most important thing when we're thinking about the diet is if you do nothing else, take out gluten. Um, and the reason for that is that um, I mentioned a little while ago one of the mechanisms for the immune system sort of mistaking self and other is uh, is a me- mechanism called molecular mimicry, and what that means is um, at a basically at a molecular level, um, certain um, peptide chains look very very similar. And it happens that um, uh, some of the proteins in um, gluten-containing grains and the and gluten and gliadin can look very, very similar to thyroid tissue. And so that can be one of the key um, pieces of the puzzle with, auto, with autoimmune generally, um, but with thyroid, absolutely. So taking out gluten would be absolutely essential. Um, other foods that really need to go, especially with at the beginning of a diagnosis would be things like, dairy, soy, um, and honestly, all grains at first until you have done some really serious gut healing um, and have gotten everything in balance. Sometimes you're able to reintroduce some of those in small quantities, but generally speaking, um, grains, dairy uh soy and then for some people eggs as well. Those are the starting points. Now I always recommend, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in testing. And so in my practice with my clients, I'm always doing um food sensitivity testing to identify what foods are very inflammatory in that individual's body. So it's not, it's, you know, we can use these sort of broad brushstrokes and that's a really good starting point. Um, But if you've done those things and you're not and you're not feeling any better, then it's it's a really good idea to work with someone who can do that kind of testing because that That will allow you to really fine tune it for Mm. your, your physiology specifically.
1: And what about with people who do the testing and gluten isn't coming up for them? would you still have them? Because obviously this is yeah. slightly different, isn't it? Where you can be gluten intolerant, you can have you know, a, per, a degree of yeah. permeability in the gut, and that's why the body's then recognizing those proteins. Mm-hmm. But it could be actually that you're not necessarily sensitive to gluten, but maybe there is some degree of permeability. I, I'm just curious what you oh, do yeah. there if people see that, because it sounds like yeah. actually it's the interpretation by the body that we're looking at here that's making gluten such an important thing. So, yes. So when I say the food
0: sensitivity testing, major caveat, I keep gluten out no matter what. I mean, that's actually a requirement for working with me is it just works to cross purposes with everything we're doing. And the reason for that, I mean, there's so many different ways we could spend an entire hour just discussing all of the different ways that gluten is challenging our systems. Um, but the thing that happens with every single person, whether you have an, an overt immune reaction or not, whether it's, I mean, because you can be allergic, you can have autoimmune like celiac, where it's actually a response to the gluten itself. You can have sensitivities and there's different types of sensitivities and there's so many different components of wheat. You know, I mean, you can do, there's certain tests. I mean, gosh, I'm thinking how many markers are there? There's a, there's one of the tests that I use is called the wheat zoomer. I'm trying to think, I mean, there's just 40 50 different markers that they're looking at i mean there's just i mean there's so many different ways that gluten can impact you um so many different aspects of it um so but when we eat gluten it stimulates the the production of a compound called zonulin and zonulin is one of the things that regulates what um, basically the permeability of our gut. So let me explain how this works. So our digestive tract is basically still the outside of our body. I think that's that's something that most of us don't think about. Like we think once we eat, that's now inside us. And it kind of is, but that's actually still the outside of our body in terms of what is actually becoming us. So I I think of us as like one very complex donut (laughs) and the donut hole (laughs) is our digestive tube. And basically what's happening is, you know, food's going in, all sorts of chemical and mechanical processes to break it down. And then in the small intestine is this moment where what we ate literally becomes us because, you know, basically we're walking food, right? Like every single cell in our body was once food. And so what determines that is what becomes us is this very thin, one cell thick lining of the small intestine. That's where the vast majority of the nutrients from our diet are absorbed. And that lining is permeable. And all the little cells, we call them the tight junctions. They line up really, really tightly next to each other. And what happens is there's these different mechanisms that like open and close to allow nutrients to pass through. And and that's directly into the blood, right? Now that's, that's the food becoming us, that's the moment. And so, what this, this process is highly selective because that's still the outside of our body. And you know? that's one of our barriers. You know, we, the immune system, one of the key functions of the immune system is, is a barrier system, like our skin is a barrier. Um, and the, this is another barrier for, um, basically taking care of what comes into our system. And so their immune system is very, very active here because it wants, it's, it's constantly, you know, it's, it's constantly surveilling this, this process. Um, and so zonulin is one of the things that dictates when a little, when a tight junction opens up and allows nutrients to pass through. And what happens when you eat gluten is this. It just, it stimulates the release of zonulin in excess and it, it causes temporarily leaky gut. And so when you, when you have leaky gut like that, What's happening is you have not just the nutrients that are getting into the bloodstream. You have nutrients that are not at the right stage of digestion. They're not fully broken down yet. So they're getting into the bloodstream. And that's one of the key mechanisms for developing food sensitivities because the immune system can't recognize that it's like you know this lovely piece of broccoli you had at lunch, right? Um, your immune system recognizes it as an invader and it starts to attack it. Um, but other things can get in there as well. You know Toxins that are bound for the toilet bowl, pathogens that are bound for the toilet bowl, all of these kinds of things can get in and so gluten we think of it as almost like a gateway food sensitivity um, and a gateway for really allowing so much um, so much into the bloodstream and triggering such a significant immune response whether it's immune response to the gluten itself or to um, something else sort of a downstream result of that leaky gut that was triggered by the gluten that mm-hmm. makes sense
1: Yeah yeah no it does it does and i guess i mean for people listening right some people uh will be thinking i just i don't want to give up gluten for the rest of my life will i never eat sourdough again uh (laughs) would be have you found that uh Once people correct this and they get into remission for people with autoimmunity, is it, this is a never thing. You can never, ever treat yourself. You're going to fall off track. What's been your experience with patients kind of years on from when they've they've sort of treated their condition?
0: For most people at this point, it becomes such a lifestyle. And honestly, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, it would be a different conversation, right? Because there's so, it's so challenging at that time to find any kind of good substitutes. But even, you know, even in terms of you mentioned sourdough bread, um, there's some delicious gluten-free sourdough bread that, you know, I sort of, I dare you to see the difference, you know, like, and, um, some could say, well, you just haven't had gluten in so long. You don't know. Um, but no, it really, like there's, there's some such great alternatives at this point. I mean, honestly, it's, it's up to the individual, you know, it's your, it's your body always. Um, would I ever recommend eating it again? Honestly, no. I think it's just so risky. Um, now context, you know, I, I watched my mom die of autoimmune disease, so I know where it can go. And so maybe I have more of an extreme, um, an extreme viewpoint than others, but I feel like that is one of the things that is um, it's fairly doable. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. saying you need to eat no grains or you know, even even dairy, I feel like there's, there's a little bit more flexibility. I've certainly seen people be able to reintegrate dairy. And some people absolutely will start eating a little bit of gluten here and there, but I just can't in good conscience for what I know it's doing in the body. I just can't in good conscience ever recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would just say if someone's fully in remission and has, made, has stayed in remission. So the very nature of autoimmune is that it ebbs and flows. And so that makes it that much more challenging because it can feel like everything is going great and then it sort of comes back. So the key is to not only get into remission, but to stay in remission. So once you've been in remission, maybe for a couple of years, you know, and you really feel like you're on the other side of this thing, that would be the time where, you know, you could consider bringing it in. Um, but if you, if you don't really absolutely have to, then, um, I would recommend not, that might sound really hard line, but as I said, I've, you know, one, one autoimmune, that's the thing is one autoimmune begets another. Mm -hmm. And, um, and um, while we understand a lot more than we did, you know, when my, my mom had this, um, it still can, it can get quite serious if it's, if it's not addressed properly. So,
1: yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think, I think that the scary thing really is the rise in autoimmune that we're seeing. Um, I think, you know, stress also plays a part yeah. in this, but why do you think we're seeing so much autoimmunity now, or are we just getting better at diagnosing it?
0: I don't think it's that we're getting better at I mean that there's an always an aspect that we're getting better at diagnosing it, but I just think that there's so many stressors on the system, there's so many things exhausting our immune systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, so obviously diet, um, our lifestyle, our st- just stress in and of itself, as you said, it is um it is a huge stressor for the immune system. Um, lack of sleep uh, toxins exposure. You know, we live in an incredibly polluted world, unlike anything the human body has ever had to deal with even as recently as 50 years ago. I mean, it's just, it's, it's remarkable. Um, uh, you know, chronic low-lying infections, whether that be, you know, viral infections that are sort of subclinical hidden in there, things like Epstein-Barr. That's a really, really common one, cytomegalovirus to a certain degree. Some of these that are just sort of their, you know, individual had them um, as maybe a child and it's just there and sort of this, again, it's the steady drip Right on. Is that is that slow um, stressor, chronic stressor on the immune system, and really, what I think it is is it's. It, would any one of these things individually be enough to push somebody into an autoimmune state? Not necessarily, but we don't have anyone. Every single one of us is exposed to just about everything I just mentioned there. You know, um, and so um, you know, it's 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 a disease of the modern lifestyle to mm-hmm. um, to a great extent.
1: Um, and,
0: you I know, think we're. From what
1: you're saying, the danger is once you've tripped into it, it's very difficult now to fully turn that switch off, right? You're, you're trying to keep it turned off, but you can't necessarily guarantee that permanency.
0: You can't. And you do need to, you know, if somebody has ever, if you've ever had any kind of autoimmune diagnosis and you are in remission, I would re- recommend at least once a year check in on those antibody levels because there's different stages of autoimmunity. And the first stage is silent you see the immune system begins its attack long before you feel any kind of symptoms. And so, um, and that's actually a great moment when that's happening, you can turn that around quite, quite, quite well. Um, but, um, but you want to pay attention to it because if you're not testing for those antibodies, you don't see sort of what's coming. It can take five, 10, 20 years from the beginning of, um, uh, antibody, um, formation to some kind of tissue in the body um, to a full-blown autoimmune disease. Um, so it's just keeping keeping your eyes peeled, you know, and in some ways having a diagnosis of, you know, it can be a gift because you're going to pay attention to it. You know, you're less likely to have surprises down the road if you pay attention to those, to those markers. So that's one of the reasons why I'm always, you know, with my clients, we run, we run antibody tests every year. Yeah. even for somebody who's in full remission um to just to make sure that nothing's creeping back in.
1: Yeah, I think that's great advice. And um what have you seen in individuals who have with because with Hashimoto's as you say often it's undiagnosed and so they're just being given thyroxine which is kind of I guess almost akin to a plaster right because you're not dealing with the underlying mm-hmm. thing. Have you that- seen that these women predominantly does seem to suffer more i guess mm-hmm. um this is what the research shows isn't it is have you seen them regularly then trip into other autoimmune conditions is there a yeah. common thread that you've seen is there something is there another one that they're then more vulnerable to, because I think there's like over a hundred different types, right?
0: Yeah. I think it's about 150 at this point. I mean, there's so many things that we didn't recognize historically were had an autoimmune component that now they're recognizing does have an autoimmune component. So there's just, you know, sort of the list feels like it's growing every day. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you have Hashimoto's, certainly the likelihood of developing something else. Um, I mean, something like diabetes, something like lupus is much higher than somebody who does not have Hashimoto's. Um, if, if someone has a celiac disease is a much, much greater predisposition because of the damage that it does to that small intestinal lining, um, which is, you know, sort of the birthplace of a lot of autoimmune dysfunction. So celiac disease, even more so than Hashimoto's in terms of as a sort of a starting point that triggers others. Um, but absolutely, if not addressed. Now, I would say, I'm happy to say that in my practice, um, somebody who comes in to see me with a Hashimoto's diagnosis, it's very rare that they're getting any other kind of diagnosis because we're focusing on the immune system, we're healing that. So we don't see that, but I do see people where it started with Hashimoto's and has progressed to other things before they come just to work with me. And so it's just a much more complex picture by the time there, but, and, you know, the root cause is still the root cause it's that immune dysfunction. And so the key is that we're identifying and systematically removing those stressors from the immune system. While we're also supporting the um, supporting the immune system to kind of calm down, you know, letting it know that things are okay, is a sort of reeducation process that we need to go through with the immune system and help to pull it out of these pro-inflammatory loops. You know, um, our immune system—we we think of neuroplasticity, right? If that's how we learn, you know, basically these new connections. Something that you do regularly, your brain will build the connection so that it does it better and faster our immune system also is plastic. It learns. And so one of the things that's happening, and this is likely one of the reasons why we're seeing such an increase in autoimmune disease, is that what the immune system is asked to do most frequently, it gets really good at doing. And we ask it to inflame all the time. And so it gets really, really good at at popping into an inflammatory loop. And it is not as well-versed. And pulling itself out of that pro-inflammatory loop, mostly because we're constantly asking it to inflame, constantly asking it to inflame. So it just gets stuck in these pro-inflammatory loops and inflammation of course is an engaged immune system. And so it's calming that, um, that inflammatory process, helping it to resolve um, and, um, and actually anti-inflame is a really key piece of this while then supporting the target tissue. So, you know, we're talking about thyroid specifically in the case of Graves, giving it nutrients to sort of calm its production of hormones versus something like Hashimoto's where we're providing glandulars and other nutrients to support the production of those hormones.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting when you look at Graves, and we were talking earlier before the show. You know, my husband was diagnosed with with Graves not long ago, and and the the medical treatment is obviously initially to control because of the dangerousness with Graves, with yes. things like the heart function, for example, yeah, yeah. and the weight loss is. Um, but then the next step is well, like let's do a total removal. Or uh, radioactive thyroid treatment, which he obviously resisted, and you think, well, that that is just a sticking plaster because now you've removed what seems to be the problem, but that wasn't the source of the problem. The source is autoimmunity. It's it's a little bit akin, isn't it, to like a condition like PCOS. You know, there's different forms of polycystic ovaries, but if you have PCOS you're still going to have problems potentially managing blood sugar even when you've transitioned through menopause because you 100%. have PCOS and I think a lot of people and you're more vulnerable to depression and things like that and I think mm-hmm. I think what what I like is you know speaking to practitioners like yourself and helping spread this message is for people to really understand that these things don't just go away no. and actually on their own they need looking after and actually when they're well managed as you said uh I think a few moments ago, maybe this was a bit of a gift because it was highlighting yes. where you needed to work on your health. And you bet. we were also talking that this is a common thing, autoimmunity in perimenopause. Can mm-hmm. you explain that mechanism? Because I think a lot of women are you know, often left wondering, well, why now? I mean, my thoughts is like, what's happening? I've been fine up until this point.
0: Right. Well, there's a bunch of different factors of that. Um, And just actually before, I I just want to say one thing about the medication piece. I think it's really important to acknowledge that medications do not heal. They manage, right? They manage symptoms. They do not heal. It's a very important difference. And so, um, you know, anyways, I'll I'll just leave it at that. Um, So perimenopause, all sorts of things happening in perimenopause with hormonal fluctuations. So when we think about the endocrine system as all of our different hormone glands, um, it's, it's very complex. It's like this really, really intricate spider's web. And so if you pull on, you know, any one string, any hormone is out of balance, the entire web is affected. And so, you know, we, and part of this is through the communication of, I talked about the hypothalamus and the pituitary. We have these HP axes throughout our body. So the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, that's the HPA axis. We have the hypothalamus pituitary thyroid axis as the HPT. And we have the hypothalamus pituitary ovarian axis, HPO axis. And so when you have changes or imbalances in any hormone, what that's going to do is it's going to affect the signaling because what happens is, you know, the hypothalamus tells the pituitary how much of a given hormone we need. The pituitary tells the gland, okay, go do this. The gland does the thing. And then there's a feedback loop that goes back up to the hypothalamus to say, okay, we got it. And so this is this loop that's constantly happening. Now, if you have dysregulation anywhere in that loop in the chain of command, if you have dysregulation in that one of the glands is not able to produce a sufficient amount of the hormone or is producing too much of a given hormone, what that's going to do is it's going to change that communication loop, which pulls on the spider web. So that is one of the key ways that, um, that, you know, we're just, we're just seeing sort of the general endocrine dysfunction. Now, um, when we're in our forties now, if as women, if we've had children, um, childbirth, and um, it's, it's often after childbirth or an in you know, early childhood rearing years that women get diagnosed. And that's because of just this incredible stressor on the body and the major flips that happen postpartum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people will get a diagnosis fairly shortly postpartum. Some people, it can take years. Um, but often um, after childbirth, what's happening, of course, in when we're pregnant, the part, whole part of our immune system shuts down. Um, our hormones can completely different makeup of hormones when we're pregnant, as opposed to not. Um, And when you have, um, when you give birth, there's this perfect storm that lays the ground for the autoimmune component. You have a whole section of the immune system coming back online. You have this big hormonal flip that happens. Once you give birth, you're tired because you're got a newborn in the house, there's elevated stress levels. And this really is this perfect storm for developing some kind of autoimmunity. Um, and because of such a strong hormonal component to it, it tends to have, um, it tends to be, um, autoimmune that manifests in that more hormonal fashion. So, um, so that's a big thing now, also by the time we're in our forties, a lot of these things, you know, we think of them as like happening overnight, It doesn't happen overnight. It's likely been building for years. Um, And um, with our thyroid and our adrenals are extremely related and our adrenals and our, our reproductive hormones are also intimately related. So thyroid and adrenal, so adrenal glands are what regulate our response to stress. They also have a lot of other roles. They do have roles in immune function. They have roles in blood sugar management, a lot of different things, but we think of them as sort of the stress handling glands. And so the thyroid and the adrenals, we can kind of think of those as like sort of two ends of the same stick. And if you have dysregulation in one, the body will often compensate by by making adjustments in the other. You know, if you are, for example, really, really hyperadrenal, then it might, you know, your body might sort of slow down metabolism to make sure you don't, you know, proverbially blow a, a gasket, right? Like, so the body has all of these compensatory mechanisms that are at play. And when we are perimenopausal and we are starting to make that transition into menopause, our adrenals play an incredibly important role um, as we make that transition into menopause. You know, they take over the production of progesterone, for example. Um, and um, and how robust and healthy and functioning our adrenals are often will dictate how smooth a transition it is into menopause. And of course, that doesn't start you know, I mean, menopause of course is a transition phase and it's something that builds up in through the perimenopause years all up until then. So um, because of this relationship of the adrenals and the thyroid, the adrenals and our reproductive hormones um, managing stress and just the accumulation of burdens of stress that often we have been dealing with for years. Um, it's just, it's it's something that has been building and then is manifesting in, in our perimenopause years, just because of this ongoing burden of the stress, um, And as we're progressing and and that role of those adrenals becomes even more, it's always important, but it comes even more important at that stage in our lives. Um, And if it's not able to sort of keep up to the task um, and we're having that dysfunction, we're starting to, you know, one of the key things when we're looking to see if a woman is in perimenopause, one of the things we look at are her pituitary hormones. Um, Reproductively, these are the FSH, that's follicle stimulating hormone and LH, luteinizing hormone. And what we'll see when a woman is entering into perimenopause is we'll see r- steep elevations in those two hormones. And basically what that is, is that's the pituitary Just yelling <laughs> at the ovaries because it's not getting the kind of response that it has historically. So that's the ovaries are starting to slow down. The pituitary is like, come on, you can do it, right? So, so, and that's of course affecting that entire HP access all of the accesses because we're thinking spider web. Mm. So this is this is this is one of the reasons why you so often see Hashimoto's being diagnosed women in. I mean, women in their thirties and forties. You know, yeah. whether it's trying to conceive and get pregnant, or on the other side of having kids, and you know, sort of like what's happening to me right now. Yeah,
1: it, and I think it is. I think it's time. a challenging time, right? I think in oh, your forties, yeah. you know, you are met yeah. with so many demands because often women Mm -hmm. who are working are in leadership positions right they've built their career they've got a huge amount of responsibility and either you've had them late so you've got young children which you're trying to sort of run around with and after and cope with or you've had children in your you know late 20s early 30s and you've got teenagers who you know what I'm finding now have their own (laughs) set of problems that you're as their mum trying to deal with and then you have You know, I I lost my dad very recently, you know, you have aging parents that you've got responsibilities to that are thing, and it's almost like a pinch there's so many different stresses that are coming in and I just think that's the the decade that I think women need a lot of support because they're being challenged and pulled in every direction and often as a mum, you you treat you put yourself last on the list, and yeah. and you need to look after yourself because you're kind of the hub, right? If you don't, yeah. um, and and their adrenals are under significant uh, levels of stress at that point. Um, I do want to touch on because before before we close, because one thing mm-hmm. you mentioned there as well was pregnancy and I know you specialize in how the thyroid can affect fertility and I just think it's important for women who are looking to conceive that are listening to understand the impact Mm -hmm. of that. Could you briefly explain uh, the mechanisms there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, with hypothyroid um, specifically, where you you give a lot more of an increased risk of infertility, and um, and then increased risk of miscarriage once you do conceive. And there's a few different reasons for that. So we've talked a lot about this HP axis, and you know, a, a big piece of it is the fact that there's so much interconnection between all of the different hormones. And when we have an underactive thyroid, that actually affects The hypothalamus hormone, um, gonadotrophin, gonadotrophin releasing hormone GRH, which is what tells the pituitary to release those two hormones, FSH and LH. So subclinical thyroid levels will affect the hypothalamus production of it's, you know, the hormone that's going to tell the pituitaries what to do, which will lead to hormone dysregulation and can often lead to an anovulatory ovulatory cycle, meaning that the woman is not ovulating. And so clearly if we're not ovulating, there's no way of getting pregnant. So that's one key mechanism. It also directly affects um, estrogen metabolism. Um, and so it can, it can dramatically reduce estrogen levels, which are part of the requirement in terms of ovulation. That's another key piece of things. Um, It also can increase the production of prolactin and prolactin is a hormone that we see in late stages of pregnancy and breastfeeding, which actually prevents conception as well. Um, So when you have elevated levels of of prolactin, it's very, very hard to conceive. And so those those are the hormonal aspects of things What's really interesting is that we're also seeing that there is an immune component to this for those with autoimmune thyroid disease. And this is new research that's coming out. I find it fascinating because it's helping to explain something that I've been seeing clinically in practice for years which is that even in women who are euthyroid, um, so they're not symptomatic when it comes to you know thyroid symptoms overtly. And when we look at their hormones, the thyroid hormones themselves are fine, but they have elevated antibodies. So there's an autoimmune attack that is going on. We see higher rates of subfertility in this population um, not to the exact same degree as we do with people with full-blown Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, but we actually do see increased rates of subfertility in this population. And so the, it appears that there is some form of autoimmune mechanism that is also contributing to um, complications with fertility. And there's there's discussion and research going into what is it? Is it some kind of cross-reactivity? Um, is it you know they're finding natural killer cells in the uterus? So is it just Excessive immune activity in the uterus itself. Um, is it that there is a cofactor that is needed for both? So, for example, vitamin D, really, really important for um, your immune system. Um, but also, we see elevated levels or, or decreased, fail, elevated failure rates. Excuse me, um, in IVF when you have sub um, suboptimal vitamin D. So, is it just that there's a nutrient? Or is it, as we talked about, well, one autoimmune begets another. And so we're, um, you know, maybe there's some other autoimmune that's starting to develop that's actually affecting those hormones. So we're not sure the answer is of the mechanism. But what it does appear is that there is actually an immune component as well, which makes a lot of sense because I will see a lot of clients whose hormones are actually fairly well managed um, medically, um, but they're still not able to conceive and they have the, the autoimmune component. And we support them the, just by healing the gut and you know doing the steps that we would do to help to bring an autoimmune process into remission. And they're able to conceive so because we think we thought it's really originally- interesting
1: i've seen women who have you know had repeated miscarriages yes uh put on very very high steroids kind of bloomed up have natural killer cells and then actually you approach it completely differently you get them on a kind of anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. diet you heal the gut get them out exercising uh eating healthy levels of protein and things and then all of a sudden they they can actually conceive and hold yeah. that pregnancy to term mm-hmm. completely naturally it's, it's so interesting
0: it's so interesting because we just think it's all about the thyroid hormones, and those are really important, but it's not just about the thyroid hormone.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. Wow, you are such a fountain of knowledge, uh, Margaret. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being so generous with it today and sharing. You're where you're can so people welcome. come and find you? I know you have an amazing article that I was reading myself for people who really just want to understand uh, the thyroid, which we'll link to yeah. in the in the show notes, the thyroid one-on-one over on your website, Eat Naked Kitchen. Yeah. But please link, where can people find you, connect with you yeah, and your
0: work? Sure thing. So a couple of different places. So eatnakedkitchen.com, that's my, my practice. There's a ton of articles on there, autoimmune community um around the thyroid. Also something I put together recently is a resource for people wanting to get started. Um, if you go to eat nakedkitchen.com slash the first five, it is, um, it's is—it's basically the first five steps that you want to do to start bringing any kind of autoimmune into remission. And so this is a really good thing for you to kind of a checklist for you to go through um, if you don't yet have the budget to work with a functional health practitioner, or if you're maybe, you know, some, some are have big wait lists and things, if you're needing to wait and you want to get started. Um, so yeah, eatnakedkitchen.com slash the first five is another great resource and i don't know if there's any clinicians or practitioners in your audience but um, i also have run a company called restorativewellnesssolutions.com and um, we train clinicians and how to do exactly all the things that i am talking with you about today so um, so that's a good resource if somebody is finding this compelling and wanting to do this professionally i can i can say that there's honestly i don't think a better line of work than helping people um, heal from these things and there's so much need for it. Um, so, uh, if that's something that intrigues you, then I, I recommend checking it out. And then on
1: Instagram, I'm at, at Margaret Floyd Barry. Amazing. Thank you so much. That's so helpful. And, uh, we so will link welcome. to all of that in the show notes. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe.